0: Welcome to Tap, the podcast in which we discuss science, technology, and, and politics. politics. So, if you're listening to this, chances are you are using one of the many podcast platforms out there. Now, all of the major ones, the big one being Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Spotify. Remember to uh, leave us a review and a. Um, We've got a couple five stars already, so you yeah. Could be so part I mean, you could be part of, of that. You view. could be part of the exclusive club. But if you're if you're listening on one of those, what you're doing is you're listening on an app. Now, both Spotify and Apple Podcasts come in app form, and it seems like the majority of people seem to consume their podcasts through apps. But when you do that, when you use an app like Apple Podcasts or like Spotify or like any of the others, you probably use more times a day than any other tool, book, or item you interact with. <laughs> I added in book there because I assume that we have a group of people that use books on a regular, on not, regular basis. You're not talking to one of them, Ethan. Well, I mean, you, it's all digital nowadays. For digital you. books, your computer. Right? I mean, I mean, you e-book. never touched anything as as as, as physical. I'm, all, as I'm a pure digital, years. pure digital. But if you're using an app like a podcast app, it is important to consider not only what you're getting from it, like an amazing podcast uh, with two talented, charming, and charismatic co-hosts but also what you're giving up. Now, we believe uh, that what you're gaining from this podcast is far more than what you're giving let's up. Let's hope, let's hope, yeah. Uh, it, it's, we don't have to hope, we know. There, there's we very know. few things in this world you could give up that's not worth the podcast. But we do want to talk about what that cost-benefit analysis is in the sense of, it's important to understand when you use an app, what is it that the app can do when you use it? You can do things to it, what can it do to you?
1: More specifically, like, what can they learn about your system? What can they learn about you?
0: And what you allow them access to. Which is a very fancy way of saying that today we're going to talk about application permission settings within um, the operating system of primarily of phones, but there's other
1: tablets and other
0: other usage of it. Yeah. And so with that as our topic, I have a very important and very basic first principles question to ask Mm. Alex, which is, what is an app? You know, that's that's a very good question. Um,
1: and it, it makes sense if we're going to be talking about all of this permission stuff and all the fancy things that apps do. We kind of want to have a good definition of them. But before we even get to that, I want to talk about kind of like what the space of computing looks like when we're talking about like apps, um, like what they're running on, um, I guess is the question. So like generally when we think of an app, it's essentially it's a computer program. It's a it's a set of code that runs, and you know when it starts, and you know when it ends, and you can enter it, and you can leave it. So for example, on the app, you can click the Facebook app that opens the application, so that code is now running for that app. And then when you're done with it, and you quit it, you can leave that app, and it's no longer running. So the question would then be, what is it running on? So really, there's two parts of every uh, computer. And I'm sure you guys have heard of operating systems, like, for example, if you're on an iPhone, there's iOS. Um, I'm on a Mac right now, which is Mac OS. And the idea is computing is really split up into two, two primary groups. There are the programs that you run or the apps that you run, which what we would call they're in user space, as in the user is accessing them. And then there are the things that they run on, which is the operating system. Like the main idea of an operating system is to deal with all of that scheduling, all that resource stuff. So for example, an app, it needs uh, computing power, right? Uh, when you open up Facebook, that code needs to run somewhere. And so something in the background has to tell it, okay, you get this processor for this amount of time, and you can run your code and show your screen and access these settings. And then when you're done, we're going to quit you. Um, so really, that is what an app is, it's a, it's a set of code that runs on top of some kind of operating system that does all the behind the scenes scheduling and, and fancy stuff.
0: Which is also partially why I kind of made that quick note at the beginning that we're talking primarily about phones and stuff. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that you you notice when you do any level of work with computers is there is a varying ability to access the operating systems, the, the functioning of the operating system in various different platforms. So typically desktop computers are a bit more accessible in the ways in which you can access the operating system and the way it's functioning versus phones and tablets, which have a bit more of a closed infrastructure. And so that kind of, that with that in mind, I guess what I'm, I'm sort of asking is, I don't even know if that's accurate, by the way, I'm just from my experience building computers and working in it, I guess the question is then, so you have apps that are being allocated processing space and various other things by the operating system. Yeah. So what, what, it, what allows it to move beyond that given space? Like basically how do apps interact with other apps and within the tools uh, right. uh, of a computer? So an app really should be
1: independent of itself and only minimally as little as possible. Ask the OS, the operating system, in the background for any special stuff. So like, there, there's this idea in computing where each app or each process should be independent of, of others, unless it needs other stuff, and then it has to go to the OS to get that information. Um, part of the reasons why we talk about this is you don't want, ha- you don't want say, for example, a, a weird piracy app on your computer. You open it up, and it destroys all the data of every other app that you have open at that time. Like that would be a bad idea.
0: So these wall, problem. these walls between apps, are they primarily like a design function or just something part of the, like the regulatory environment of OS? And- no, it's, it's built into the
1: OS. It's literally impossible to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes for other permissions as well. So like if you just had a standard app that did nothing, like it, the common thing is it prints Hello World, right? Or it computes one plus one and it stores something that says to, that doesn't really need any other permissions, but when it actually wants to show something on the screen, uh, the app doesn't own that screen. It doesn't have access to that screen uh, directly. It has to go to the operating system and say, hey, I want to print this on the screen that you own. So You can think of the operating system as the government, and each person or each business is an app, and it asks the government for a... Regulatory permit to do something on the screen, and then it's up for the up to the operating system to say yes or no for other stuff as well. Um, so, like, there's a lot of apps out there that use audio, right, or uses the microphone, for example. So, yeah. So, if an app wanted to access your microphone, it can't just do that on its own. Um, that could be very uh, dangerous. For example if an app without actually asking the operating system was just able to use your microphone, that means any app that you had on your phone, just whenever it wanted, it could start listening. Um, and that's bad. So there's restrictions to that. The app has to go to the operating system and say, Hey, can I use the microphone right now? And the operating system has, uh, defined, uh, rules for this. And part of those is for example, like a, uh, Thing that pops up on your phone and says, "Hey, can this app use the microphone?" And you, the user, has to actually say yes or no. And that's that's not what the app's doing. The app is asking for it, but the OS is giving you that request.
0: And so, I guess the question is, if if there are these built-in limitations with the OS for the ways in which apps can access uh, your the other tools on your phone, whether it's your camera function or your GPS function Mm -hmm. or your sound function, microphone function. And those let's, let's assume that those permissions are, are well structured, which we can discuss at a later time. Mm -hmm. What are ways where in which apps, which are dealing with these kind of barriers can get around those barriers if they wanted to access tools, but are barred from doing so with permissions. Is it possible to do that? Um,
1: So I want to, Say no. I want to say no generally. Um, like the average user should not be worried that an app is using something um, that you haven't given it permission to. So so no, if you haven't given Facebook its access to your microphone, then it's not using your microphone to listen to your thoughts. I'm, I'm sad to say. Um, that's not to say they're not doing other things to figure out what you are interested in or what you're going to buy next or what ads to show you. They may be viewing a a multitude of other different ways of data collection. We'll talk a little bit about that in this episode, but I think mostly we're going to talk about data in a a future episode. Is that
0: right? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll save a lot of the data considerations for a later episode. But for now, I think it's important to talk about when it comes to permissions, what these other ways of collecting data are. So like, we can talk about how the data is used later, but mm-hmm. for now, I guess the important question I said, this is the second time in which I've in a row in which I've phrased it as the important question or the question is, mm-hmm. there's a lot because of questions. They are, there are important. The, they, these are the yeah. big ones, right? If, if the, if you wanted to collect data on an individual, but you're limited to a smaller subset of tools because mm-hmm. of the permission setting, but you think that that data is going to be useful to you in some way, because it's going to be able to influence the way that you provide content or promote certain services. Mm -hmm. What are ways in which with a limited tool set an apps, an app can collect data that they are not otherwise supposed to collect? Are you you asking what are the ways to break the rules? Yes, of course. What are the ways to break the rules? What are the ways to break the rules is my legal middle name. So you download this
1: random app on, on the app store and it, and it, it wants to do all this harmful things to the user but the user's smart enough to not say yes to accessing files, accessing uh, your camera, asking your, accessing your microphone, all of this jazz, right? That's or, interesting.
0: That's yeah, interesting. or specifically, let's say in real-world examples, if they have access to one set of tools, um, like they might have access to GPS or they might have access to your gyro controls within your phone, how can they go from that to collecting data that they would be mm-hmm. able to collect easily with another source, like if they had the complete log of all of your keystrokes, but they, they don't have that. They don't But they that. want to collect similar amounts of data. Essentially, like, apps that are trying to... How do they get around these permissions if they're given a smaller set of tools than they would like? Well, so the, I think there's a, there's a level structure to this
1: of, like, the easiest and the most likely to, to not work to the highest, where it's tons of computation that needs to be done. It's all probabilistic, um, but it might not get caught. And so, like I guess, if we start at the very bottom, like the simplest, if I was making an app, I'm not making an app. But if I was making an app, I may be making an app in the future. But if I, if I was making an app and I wanted to, if I wanted to access Ethan, your. Uh, your microphone, because I wanted to hear your secret dealings with.
0: I mean, I, I, we, we clearly put
1: our microphone out on the web, so right. But you know, after the po- after this podcast ends, and we our secret talking, conversations, our secret conversations. If I want to start, you know, logging that secretly, you know, for whatever legal issues I may have, then what I would do is I would just put the uh, button to allow access for the user right behind an ad, uh, like an ad or something like that. So you you go and you click the ad to get it out of the screen. It's really annoying and then it ends up pressing the button for uh, giving you full access, right? I've experienced that before with flash games. Yes. That's it's, a weird it's a thing to bring thing. up, but... it's I mean, it's easy. It's been been out there forever. That's the easiest way to do it. You really you're screw- you're tricking the user to doing something or you put it in the top corner and then they accidentally X out something and you give it
0: access. Right. The second way is. So, so, wait, so that first way can be basically described as just tricking the user into giving those permissions anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's total abuse of the consumer. Yeah. Okay. So continue on to the, the other way. This, the second way is you make it innocuous at first, but in Ethan, I think this might be some interesting conversation with you is you, you give it an innocuous uh, idea to the, to the user at first, but then you end up using that stuff for other things. So, what do I mean by that? For example, on Twitter, you can put on your location services so that you could have geolocations on your tweets. So, you could say, I'm here at the, the Bahamas, and then you can put your resort in at the top of your tweet, right? That sounds innocuous at first, maybe to some. But that data can then be used for different things, for example, putting you in some kind of category of people who are here, um, giving you different ad placements, et cetera, et cetera, that you may, you may have accepted purely for the fact that you wanted to put in that one new fancy feature, but is then being used when you're not expecting it. So that's like the general idea, right? Um, my question to
0: you then, Ethan, is is that, is that legal? yes and no that's like i don't think i've ever given a straight answer on this podcast i don't think i ever will no because the whole point of this is that it's a bit of an unknown legal space nominally yes in the sense that a lot of the existing contract law pieces of contract law that exist do allow for these problems that we encounter the exception being that first type which is the um the, f- the fraud in like the inducement. That, that is illegal. No? That, that's straight up illegal. And, and yeah. it would be illegal because it's fraudulently causing someone to uh, enter into a contract because right. they okay. didn't intend on entering into the contract. But essentially the way that permissions work is legally their contracts. You're signing them and you are entering a legally binding contract in which you agree that because you were the owner of the phone, you are allowing this software, which is a, a subsidiary of a third-party company. And you're saying you're allowed to use this thing. That's like if I entered into this contract that said, Hey, Amazon, you're allowed to borrow my pen. You may use it for writing uh, these things and then you give it back to me or whatever. Like that's, that's, right. that's, I mean, the law was designed to be written for those type of scenarios. Not that anyone's ever had a contract for lending a pen. Um, but if you scale it up to larger scale things, theoretically it should be illegal. Just yeah. Because. So the, if you take existing law uh, it's, it's, it treats apps just like that, where you're, you're, you're making a contract. In that case, it'd be fraud because you're trying to induce someone through into a contract illegally Got it. through, well, I mean, I can't say it's illegal because it's illegal. I mean, it, it's illegal because you're trying to <laughs> induce someone into a contract that they wouldn't otherwise get into. It's fraud it's really in the okay. inducement. The interesting one, though, is the usage of of permissions for services that are not expressly listed at the as the usage of the permission service. Mm-hmm. i phrase that sentence weird. What I mean by that is if you let's look at a phone, let's look at a product like Uber. Mm-hmm. So Uber has a clearly defined reason why location services would be required. And that is right. it needs to locate where you are. It needs to locate nearby cars and it needs to plot a route from your location to the location that you're choosing and from the car to you. So that's a series of location services that one could assume as the base requirement of Uber. So when Uber pops up, they say, you you must approve location services. They might have an explanation, Mm -hmm. but that, that, that doesn't have to be entirely accurate. That's actually optional. A lot of apps just say Snapchat is requesting uh, camera access. They mm-hmm. don't technically have to provide a list They don't have time. to give you, oh, right, each they, time. They no. do have to include it in the terms of service, but that's we'll get to that shortly. Right. But when it comes to the notifications, they can just notify and say location services. So when you accept location services, you're clicking okay, um, and then you you have a, a couple of assumptions there that reasonably you are making, which is that Uber wants it for the movement of, the cars to you and you around. Right. It makes sense to the consumer why that would be the case. But like, what if Uber is also you, I don't know if this is the case. I'm, I'm just making them. What if, cause Uber I've noticed has there, they have recommendations for locations. When you open it up, they also have Uber eats. Mm-hmm. What if it uses that data in some other way? Like what if it uses your location data to advertise restaurants to you or stores, travel patterns to advertise in Uber eats or it knows that you pass this route. And so it right. recommends this restaurant right. that's on the way. The question is, is it illegal for them to do that? I mean, on a, on a street level, no. Because remember, we're stuck in this old form of contract law, which I, I'm not an expert at contract law, by the way. But the, the, the general premise of it there is you've signed into this contract that is agreed upon by the terms of service. When you log in, you read these terms of service, you skip directly to the end and you click accept. And in that terms of service, they might say, we will use your location services for whatever we want. And you've officially signed away. (laughs) But the question is whether that kind of contract paradigm still holds true in the modern day. For example, like a thing that people often use for contracts, like when determining legality of contracts is what is the expected intent of the person that's going into the contract? Like, is it fraud if you've constructed an app environment that absolutely implies to an individual that the purpose of this location service is for the clearly stated reason for the app existing, but then it's used for something else. Huh. That's not legally fraud, but is it morally fraud? Because there, there's it's a not, level. There, it's not good faith at least. Yeah. And there's steps you have to take away from legality here because again, in existing contract law, it's it's built for a world in which these contracts are analyzed by lawyers And you've written this out and you both have parties in the creation of this contract and you know, all of its terms and you say, this is, we both agree that this is how it's going to go. We're going to shake hands and the contract is signed. But with this, is that necessarily the same thing? Because there's a, there's a, there's a couple, there's a couple things here. The one is that like the clearly expected usage of the data is not what they're using the data for. I mean, I mean, they're technically not violating the written contract, but are they violating something else that we should protect? And then that also brings us to the problem that terms of service has, It's it's which is basically the, that these documents are huge, massive documents that require both a combination of a computer science degree and a law degree in order to understand. The average consumer is not going to have that background knowledge to accurately look at that yeah. document. But they're expected to sign it as if it was any other legally binding contract. Right. And again, if you're in the standard paradigm of a contract, where if you make a contract, you said accept to the terms of service, that's it. Mm-hmm. Well, then, yeah, it, then it's, it's just a contract and there's no fraud or anything going on here. And that's that's the way that the law approaches it. And that's the way that most people approach it, because that's how contracts work in their own lives. But is that perspective towards contracts wrong here? Because, I mean, we can't really tie it to anything, like any large moral principle, but we can say, this is the way we've been doing it. But if we start to run against like obvious moral barriers that seem to pop up, like these absurd conclusions that can be reached, mm-hmm. like what if they put in the contract that we agree to let you kill, let us kill you anytime we want. Which, <laughs> there's other protections. because well, I mean, we've of already done our cryonics episode, so. Well, yes. Um, what is the obligation of... A tech company to make their content explainable to an audience. Like, do you? But what have if it's to... not possibly explainable, though? Like, what if it's like? Then, then, what is it legally binding? From a moral perspective, contracts are understood by both parties and agreed upon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you see in the TV shows, people like, "Ha ha, I got you with a contract loophole." But in general, like that's not print, like the goal right. of a contract. The fine print is not typically the goal of the contract, and in, and in many cases. It's, there are, it can be legislated or it can be um, dealt with in the courts as like an attempt to manipulate the person entering into the contract. So there right. there are protections against that. But the thing with with apps in particular is that as the major apps have grown, they've become not services but essential components of life. And that sounds like right. a first world thing like, oh, yeah my Snapchat is an essential service, except it, when it becomes an essential service. It's obviously right. not water, but many careers are absolute, like they have absolute requirements of you have to be able to access email. Like you can't right. not have email and function in the world. Or,
1: or even Zoom, at the, in or Zoom.
0: Zoom is a great example. Age, like, right? I mean, there's
1: tons of privacy stuff that's happened with Zoom. I don't know the background technical stuff on most of it,
0: but um, I know they're a player on this absolutely and i guess again we run into an old paradigm again data the, when it comes to data law the whole thing is that old paradigms no longer fit and what i'm saying doesn't make sense if you're thinking in the old paradigm way because of course they don't have an obligation to provide the service it may be required that you have email but like you won't die without it you're entering into a contract you're getting a service you're not entitled gmail but when it is something that is so integrated into society that you cannot reasonably function as a productive member of society, when does it become an obligation of the legislature or an obligation of our regulatory bodies to ensure that these contracts, which you have to enter into if you want to maintain a, a level of production, a level of, uh, of, of, quality of life mm-hmm. are more explainable or more accessible than, uh, than they currently are. So, is there any other
1: player? And then, like, uh, what I'm thinking at least is, I've always heard that Europe is crushing us when it comes to da- data privacy and consumer protections. So, is there any other way? Maybe, maybe the American idea of data and permissions and stuff like that. Maybe we're just flawed and there's
0: another legislative. Group well, that's, that's just true better. in a lot of cases. And I, I don't mean. That that came out wrong. <laughs> it's true that <laughs> you, we're. Flawed. You guys heard it here. No, it's true that we are behind when it comes to a level of regulatory novelty that are that is adopted by other major players. Europe being the major one, and this holds in a bunch of other emerging technology areas as well. But data is the big one, where Europe has the General Data Protection Regulation or the GDPR, which is this massive piece of legislation that is designed to protect data in much more extreme ways. And I, I, what are some of the differences? Well, like I lived, uh, in Cambridge for a good time, uh, studying at the university of Cambridge and one of my biggest clashes between moving there was not like any of the smaller stuff that you might encounter moving from a different country. It was the data protection regulation where you log (laughs) into a site and you were having to give permission. For this is separate from app permissions. This is just giving giving permission for like website. Your, yes, right. website permissions, like uh, to use your data in certain ways. But they had a list of the ways in which your data would be used, and you had to say yes to some and no to others, or no to all of them. Mm-hmm. And you're not redirected if you say no. And that's a major different way of approaching it. What do you mean they're not redirected? Like they can't k- kick you off? Yeah. So in some places, if you decl- theoretically, if you decline. Uh, levels of data um data not data manipulation collection level of data a data collection the site can refuse you service they're not allowed mm-hmm. to refuse service if you don't want to adhere to that because there is a realm of data protection that is removed from the obligations of contract law which is basically what we were talking about with the terms of service now in the terms of service you can you see all this legal jargon and then you sign away your rights basically mm-hmm. And they say, hey, you actually signed a contract. You could have reviewed it. You could have spent time. It doesn't matter that it's a vital part of service for your day-to-day life. So you don't really have a choice. It doesn't matter that you're not able to renegotiate the contract. It doesn't matter that you have to have a combination of scientific and technical expertise that we can't manage between both of us in the podcast right now because we had to get both of us together in order to be able to talk about these right, issues. Right. It doesn't matter about any of that because uh, you signed a contract. And, and the, the way that Europe works, it says no. That regardless of whether you, you want to enter a contract or not, there are certain things that you are obligated to be given. You are be obligated to be given the ability to control the way that your data is used in these certain circumstances. And you cannot just automatically sign that away. And they can't phrase it in a way in which you have no other choice. Like you ha- it has to be explainable to a level. It has to be differentiated or has to be able to be differentiated. And what i mean by that is that when it comes to that data you have to be able to choose how your data is being used. And so here's the thing with the permissions that's interesting. Mm-hmm. The way they frame it is in a binary choice where they say you either have to allow us to use location services See, or that's not. Still, that's skipping the whole issue of innocuous usage versus like exactly. Right? They they are what they are doing and it's 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 kind of ingenious is that they are the ones that are framing and shaping the horizon of possibilities. They're saying to you that there are only two possible ways to approach this. Either you allow us to have location services or you don't. And since they control the architecture of the app and OS doesn't really help in this matter, those are the only two options you have. And code is enforcing in this way. It's self-enforcing. Like I cannot click a third option that says, no, you're going to do this. Now with a contract, I can try and negotiate with a person and rewrite the language myself. And obviously there's ways
1: you can use location data in some ways and be uh, disagreeing with that,
0: but like agreeing with others, right? Certainly, like I could want to use my location services for the purposes of Uber, but not for advertising about me where they know my home location. So they know the nearby restaurants that they can send me ads. I might not want that, but I do want the ability to locate my, location for this period of time, hold my data for just that period, and then disappear once I'm moved. And of
1: course, they make it so that if you didn't use that location data, etc.,
0: then the whole functionality of some apps are, are gone. Yeah, it breaks the app, which means you have to choose between allowing for the potential of these side usages, or you have to lose the ability to use the app at all, which says, oh, well, it's a service, we can deny that. But again, we're talking about things that are like instrumental to the fabric of modern society. And so Europe says, no, this is the wrong way to approach it. Now Europe's GDPR is not perfect. It's not as extreme as where I just said, where you can list every way in which location services can be used. It's more just a general set of regulations in which you know how your data is being, being used and you can choose not to have that data collected. But the idea is, is that there's a, there's a realm of choices beyond that that you deserve the ability to uh, to determine.
1: It, it makes me wonder if it's even possible to enumerate like but like a, a real valid contract that enumerated all of the things that you may want or you may not want or every functionality of the app could be so long and exhaustive that it would just not function. so it, I'm wondering if there even exists some kind of middle of the road uh, path to this because no matter what you take away, you're going to be limiting the understanding of a consumer.
0: Yeah. And to some extent, the way to approach that would probably be a combination of, of ways in which they can use your data once they collected it. So regardless of how they collected it, are you allowed to use their data for advertising? If you click no, it doesn't matter how they collected. They can't use it for advertising. That's a, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So more, more, uh, use-based versus collection-based. Yeah. Cuz that's one that's that is a bit more easier to see. When it comes to the other forms of collection, there's there's a problem of information asymmetry where they have access to information about how the app works and how they collect information and how they use it that you don't have access to. So when you sign into a contract, there's an asymmetry in the information that both parties have access to when they're going into that contract, mm-hmm. like the terms of service. And that's partially because a lot of the coding, the actual way in which data is collected is proprietary by these apps and is not even included in the terms no. of service. And we can argue or at least make a moral, a, a clear moral argument that information asymmetry is problematic in the creation of contracts or at least the creation of contracts that is, that is binding and obligatory to follow because you might not have the information to consciously agree. Where yeah. if you had information, you might not have agreed or there might've been another way of approaching it. And the other way is the way that kind of Europe tends to do it, which is breaking in the binary that contracts kind of impose, Mm -hmm. where contracts don't let you uh, choose anything in between yes or no. And the way that Europe works and the way that maybe in theory it should work is we assume that you are not allowed to limit contracts in that way. That due to information asymmetry and other problems like this, you um, set certain things beyond the bounds of certain contracts or guarantee that you're always able to do certain things. So there are there are like in theories ways to limit the damage of a lot of this stuff. That's
1: really interesting. Um and especially it's interesting because um not to mention like the regulatory differences between Europe and, and the US, um, like tech and tech culture has a completely different culture. Um tech culture is has a different culture, yeah. But it's very different in Europe versus the US. Namely, wages are skyrocketed in the U S for software development, et cetera. Um, but are fairly stagnant in the, in the Europe. And this is changing, um, in some countries, like for example, I think Germany software is becoming more of a profitable business, but I mean, there are some people who would argue that the reason why there's so little innovation and, and software is not a big moneymaker as it is in the U S um, in Europe. Is because of these regulations. Personally, I feel like that's a little, of that's kind of a bad argument. Just because like there's no reason to assume that just because we're not exploiting consumers, there can't be any benefit, cool tech happening. Um, I'm sure. I mean, there's there's tons of companies in the U.S. that do just fine without doing any kind of uh, shady stuff to the consumer. So it just seems like that same thing could be replicated in Europe.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not fully convinced by the idea that it is tech regulation that is affecting the tech sector's ability to pay for talent and that kind of stuff. That is a very complicated question that can't probably be unilaterally pulled to any one specific thing, especially as it is a greater trend than the timeframes in which regulations have been enacted and passed. Mm. So that that loosens its its explanatory. Uh, value plus as a later episode one thing i'd love to talk about is specifically the different trends in um human capital as it comes to tech development so software engineers and stuff i've done research on this and this would be a fantastic episode I like the idea that it's the new oil or something like well, that there or? is a there's a lot of great stuff there and uh when it comes to the way that talent is distributed across nations what pulls talent to certain locations oh um, the, like the I brain drain wrote, kind of like brain drain. I wrote a brief on, I wrote a research article on this. Um, we'll talk about that later though. Cause that is a full topic. So there is a, so there's a huge ecosystem of reasons why the, the talent pools might be different, but one thing regulation does do, and this is where it could impact cost is that if it raises the cost of producing a piece of technology, that cost has to be externalized or internalized somewhere. So it can be externalized outwards to the customer. So let's say it takes $50 more. That's really low, but let's say it takes $50 more to comply in paying uh, a software engineer. I would expect the software engineer, the price, the wages of software engineers should actually go up in such a situation because they have to work more to um, apply, to comply with these regulations. But that is not on its Something's own sufficient because it depends on, on the whole regulatory framework of, of, of Europe. But the cost either has to be raised on the consumer or it has to be externalized somewhere, a cut in profits to an, an executive department, different and different. Anyways, oh right, the cost has to be spread somewhere. But that make, that raises an interesting dynamic where if we accept the proposition that regulation causes a cost increase this isn't like I'm not saying that regulation causes tech to be absurdly expensive or it causes the economy to collapse I'm saying that it causes a a cost increase by definition by putting on more requirements than it would have otherwise right. at minimum you have to code in a maybe option to the permission settings and if you assume that there's any level of cost that actually doesn't provide an example of why we need to get rid of all this tech regulation provides an example of how tech regulation can cause change in other areas like the United States, even though we might not expect that to happen naturally.
1: Are you saying what what I think you're saying is some of the regulations in Europe, because it, It costs so much to have two different code bases for both of them. You may push companies to just adopt
0: it widespread. Absolutely. Most restrictive. So I am actually a little bit positive about the future of tech regulation because of the trends that I've noticed in emerging technology regulation. The big thing is setting standards, especially for 5G, but that's a separate topic. An Mm -hmm. example of this is California. California is an economic powerhouse, unlike almost any other region of the world. The only region of the world that can even compete with it is the Northeastern Corridor, which includes both Washington, D.C. and New York, and that and Boston and other major areas. That is a powerhouse. But California, as a state, is a titan. It's the fifth largest economy in the world on its own. And it has the massive Hollywood sector, which is the entertainment capital of the world. And it has the massive uh, tech sector in Silicon Valley, which is the mm-hmm. tech capital of the world. It is, and it's also, as an additional note, it's an agricultural powerhouse, which produces a huge I'm amount of I'm a very big California... Uh, yeah, we're want- both California born and bred. Uh, right. So big Cali fans. Uh, I mean, it has its problems, but uh, I love it. But what that, ha- what that massive share of the economy allows it to do is it allows its standards to creep outwards. So when California, the big one is with uh cars. When California sets standards for for emissions or for the production of its vehicles or in agriculture, it sets standards on for environmental protections in agriculture. Mm-hmm. It is such a large market that business uh business people in the rest of the country that have to decide on how are we gonna design our next car or how are we going to design our new product for agriculture, have to consider the fact that when it comes to economies of scale, it makes a lot more sense to produce all of the same thing versus having a couple factories producing different things. Mm It is the benefits of economies of scale come from identical replication because then you can specialize and have machines that are just repeating the same process. And they have to consider that. And then they have to also consider the fact that California is an economic powerhouse bigger than almost every other state combined. Like again, with the exception of the Northeast Corridor, you could combine most markets and you'd still be smaller than California. So if you're making a car, you either make it to California, you either make two cars, one for California standards, California compliant, and one for the rest of the nation. Or you spend that little extra amount of money and you make them all california compliant because it's easier and it's less costly because there is a cost involved in the california regulation it that cost difference means that the products are different that's where the that's where the cost difference comes from it comes from different products and since so we we products, have that leverage do we really have that leverage we do there's a there's a saying that go, that is where goes California, then goes the nation or something like that. It's a quote of something that typically refers to social policy in the sense that California tends to be in terms of social policy ahead of most other states, not in the sense of any moral sense of like California is going to, if you got to look at California to see the way that the social fabric of America is going, but that if you look back in history, the major social innovations on race relations, on gender relations, and all that kind of stuff that happened on the national level are preceded by California by a pretty consistent set of years. It's like 10 years is like the standard. or something. Roughly around there, yeah. yeah. And so you can say that that's with social policy that California is leading the nation. But it also is true in terms of regulation, where if California regulates something, it's such a large market that in many cases that cost of regulation creates it reflects different products which means that people have to decide, am I going to bear that little cost and just produce all of the same product? Or am I going to try and split it? And in which case I have to spend a lot more because I need two different production lines.
1: It's interesting that there's kind of like a trickle down going on where the in, in just in data privacy, stuff like that, most of it's coming from Europe right now. And that's trickling down to California markets and California companies. And that's then trickling down to the rest of the country in the world.
0: Yeah. There's like this Europe, California, um, Midwest axis of, uh, of, of tech flow. That being said, I'm sure there's problems with that view. Oh, like there's like, yeah.
1: there's counter examples and stuff like that. But Oh, for sure. And it's chance. not,
0: it's not a golden standard. It's tech it, software in particular is less. How do I phrase it? Software in particular is less prone to following these trends because they're more easily manipulatable in the sense that the issue is not two production lines where we see this most strongly is in the production of telecommunications equipment and uh, like nuclear power plants and stuff like that. Well, that, that there's other agencies that regulate that, but when you have to physically build something, it's, it's a lot harder to make multiple versions, multiple iterations of the same thing. Software is less Like you really make one product,
1: you just push that to wherever it's being downloaded. Yes. It's easier
0: to make, it's easier to change things where you could probably upload a Facebook in, in the U S and a Facebook in the UK that, well, UK is not part of the EU. So whether it's data protections is going to fall along the same line is a different question for a different time. But um, whether it's in France or in the U S you could have coding differently. But the one thing that it does allow us to do though is that it removes certain profit models from the equation entirely. So let's say Uber functions where it is, gets 20% of its revenue actually from going between places. Maybe it operates at a profit loss, but it gets most of it from secretly collecting your information with location settings and then advertising. Now, that might be an effective model in the US, but it cannot work in Europe. Because of that division, well, okay, again, permission settings in this case is not something the GDPR focus on it a bunch. It focuses mainly on website. Yeah, but that's like a bit, it like a, that's a lower. I'm not, level. This, isn't a, this isn't a real example, by the way. I'm just giving an okay. example of, of, just off the top of my head, using what we've already done. It removes a way of making, a way of structuring an entire app entirely out of the equation. And so if, for example, if you're limited in the ways you can collect data and your entire model is about collecting people's data and selling it, it might not work. And thus it, it might, you might affect other markets by the fact that it may not be cost. It may not be cost effective to make that app because you might only be able to sell it in one market. It might be functionally impossible to use in another market. So in, in, in this tech regulation, we see two trends that are big in the world. The one is a pressure towards being the first. And then this is in particular with technology, less with apps where the, the country, and this, when I say country, I'm mainly meaning the big powers: U.S., Europe, and China. Australia and Japan occasionally, but it's mainly those big blocks of the EU, U.S., and China because of how big their markets are, uh, by just by the number of people, let alone the amount mm-hmm. of dollars. India too, but like less so. You you see a push for the being the first because whoever is first, if that technology is adopted widely enough, the standards that you set at first will kind of create a level of path dependency where it's, depending on where you start, it affects the possible range of regulations and changes you can make going forward. So there's a race to be the first. And that gives you a lot of power because if they decide that since your regulation went first, we're going to model all our regulation off of iterations of that first regulation, you were given a level of power over the markets. You could probably manipulate it a bit to help your own market by making regulations that benefit you. Anyway, so there's a race to be the first. But there's also an inwards pressure towards being the most pervasive regulation. And that's not out of like the desire to pervasive regulation, like meaning that it covers the most areas. It's like most ingrained into the technology because of that spillover effect that we were just talking about. So if your regulation is the strongest, if you are an app developer and you're deciding I have to comply with the regulatory standards of the U S which let's say has the least, Mm-hmm. of an independent UK, which is like a middle middle range, or of Europe, which is the most, in many cases, you can assume that the standards of Europe absorb the other ones. They absorb right. the UK and US regulations within it because it's more expansive in its regulations. So you might as well just focus on so going to the highest. To the, you jump to the highest because right. you catch all the other ones. Right. And so there is, if you want global power, there's actually a bit of a race to be the most... To be the best at data regulation, because if you're the best at data regulation, then it's your country's standards that a lot of nations are going to, the private companies within nations, are going to write to, which gives you a lot of power because when you want to change regulation going forward, yours is still going to be the standard model. So like a tweak here in the GDPR means your companies are going to be 50% more successful or something, and so there's benefits to that. So there's actually a little bit of hope coming from this dynamic because it I does so. mean okay. that A, it means that these, these regulations, there's a push towards being just for national power region, regions, just for national power reasons to be more expansive. And second, these regulations that are more expansive force other markets to comply for simple reasons of economic logic. But I, I want to take a step back really quick for the end here. And step away from good faith recap, regulation. Recap, yeah. Oh yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to do the recap? Sure.
1: So, so this has all been great. We've first talked about like base level a way to get past all of these uh, data protections. And the first way, like we said before, you just click a button. You're accidentally clicking a permission thing. Uh, that's a fraud. Ethan, you said it was illegal. Um, we've already got I'm pretty that sure. Hopefully, I really hope so. The next way that we talked about is like the bad faith, but we're still asking you, you know, it's still all legal. um, And that has some moral implications, whereas they could be using that permission for stuff that you didn't originally intend that permission to do so. And therefore the contract is maybe
0: not valid Um, or it's valid, but it's clear that the regulation hasn't caught up to that. What I was proposing was, Changes to the way that we morally approach contracts because the way we've approached contracts thus far reaches
1: just are not barriers. Working. It just,
0: it, right. it just becomes not functioning when you deal with the type of pervasive level of contracts in all, all aspects of society that control such important things in which information is like limited about it and requires mm-hmm. a level of technical expertise. Perhaps mm-hmm. our typical understanding of contracts doesn't work. And that would have to be written into law later. It hasn't been done yet. So we've already got that done.
1: Let's move on to the third way that I I wanted to keep for last because I think it's it's very speculative. There's been a couple papers, a couple articles on this, but it's it's kind of fancy. It's basically like a way of side-channeling all of these. So using stuff that, using permissions that maybe the user was using um, accepted, but using them for completely different ways In a way where it's actually doing the same function as another permission that you could give them the main example that i wanted to talk about is using the gyroscope so actually generally the gyroscope is something that doesn't give a direct permission to the user like the user you never get a permission on your iphone saying can this app use your gyroscope because it's seen as so innocuous And so pervasive through many different
0: apps. Oh, can you clarify different what the gyroscope is? I mentioned it before, but I didn't.
1: Using the gyroscope, which is seen as innocuous. And when when we say gyroscope, we basically mean like the orientation of your phone. Like there's Mm -hmm. in every phone, it knows if it's right side up. It knows if it's facing down. You can see this on your own iPhone. If you move it up kind of at an angle, then the screen turns on, right? And it's assuming that you've moved it up to look at it with your face. So like that's a standard process. Across many different apps, and it doesn't actually give you explicit uh, permission questions to the user. So there, there's been studies that we can use that gyroscope just based on the orientation of the phone alone. We can figure out tons of other information um, from you and your um, basically any other information. Um, one of the main ways is if you just use your gyroscope and your accelerometer, basically telling us when the where the phone is moving. Um, we can basically to, to a, a pretty good accuracy, figure out uh, GPS location. So your physical location somewhere can be uh, replaced by a purely GPS stuff. So of course, this is going to take tons of computation. It's going to be uh, really difficult to do. But But like we've talked about earlier, all data has some kind of value, at least to a computer scientist. So if you conglomerate all of the gyroscope information that you have for like a whole month or something, we can basically probabilistically pick out a couple different locations in the U S where you could be to where you're not bumping into buildings. Right? So we'll say, hmm. Oh, you're mo- your crazy. phone feels like it's moving this way. It feels like it's moving this way. Where could that possibly happen? You know? Okay. That you're most likely not next to a, a, a building. And you looks like you just moved into a building. Oh, that means a building must be there. Um, so slowly but surely, you can limit out the places in the U.S. that you could be. And once you have a place where you're fairly sure you are, we can base everything off of that. So there you go. An app has just purely from g- or gyroscope information has figured out where your location is. Uh, bypassing any kind of privacy stuff like that where you had to actually accept to use your location data it's done that through a different means and then you can also use the gyroscope for some other fancy ways um namely there was a wired article about using your gyroscope as a microphone so you may be wondering well, how do you use the orientation of your phone as a microphone well the way the gyroscope works is it figure it uses vibrations to determine where it is right so the gyroscope inside your phone may vibrate slightly just from the sound of your voice. And if a savvy programmer picks up on that, they can pick out the small vibrations from that gyroscope and then use that to recreate your voice. A similar way that we've seen that recently is in the elections with Hillary Clinton and uh, Bernie Sanders. They were in the debate stage and Hillary Clinton said something with her microphone off, but just from vibrations of other stuff. I'm not exactly sure if that's how they did it in that case, but they were able to recreate what her voice said, either from just her mouth moving or some vibrations or some triangulation from other microphones, right?
0: That's crazy. And there's so many examples of this that you can find online of these it's, weird It's fairly modes. terrifying, yeah. Like how GPS sometimes includes altitude. So not only do they know your location, they might not be able to know the floor that you're on. And that's not and that, even really getting into that, things right? like Roombas and Alexa. But separate from that, I guess I wanted to quickly say that before I had this moment of optimism about the way that regulation works. And I think that's in general true, that there is this arc that we see with regulation just simply due to market dynamics. But another thing we have to keep in mind is something that's a bit more psychological and that's a bit more social. So we take these weird side examples that we're talking about and... It sounds absurd to us that they would use these technologies in this okay, way. Why would they
1: go at such a great length to just figure out your location?
0: And it seems like morally wrong. Like it's it, you're sneaking something. Mm-hmm. But an important thing to consider is how easily that we become adapted to new technologies. And there is something in science and technology philosophy called function creep. And what I mean by that is that when we begin to accept certain permissions as normal, or we start to allow these usages, let's say this happens and we decide, yeah, it's a re- it's reasonable because it's doing a particular service. Oh, it's mm-hmm. helping us in some way. It quickly becomes cemented, and then it quickly becomes uh, immovable. Commonplace, would you say? Okay. It becomes commonplace, and then it becomes impossible to change. GPS is the example of this. Originally, people were really skeptical about GPS. Mm-hmm. And originally, it was limited to just navigation, just mapping where you were going. But then it expanded a little bit to be able to be used for advertising purposes. And then a little bit more to that to be used in a whole bunch of apps, uh, games that now use your locations, or Find My Friend, where you can send tracking information to other people mm-hmm. to track you, or family tracking programs, which is kind of normalized surveillance. To, to or, or Tinder to so where you could find your, your <laughs> exactly. Love and right before the, the idea that location services would be, ex- everyone would just click yes, you can use location services would be crazy. It would be crazy that you would let services for something as small as like a dating pool. Use location services, but it creeps outwards. It then becomes normal, and then becomes immovable because it Does will that never mean be it reverted. Never
1: gets back. It never.
0: You yeah, never like take no, away a, a feature. Once a feature is been accepted, it is almost impossible to make it unaccepted socially because right. it's already been accepted by a group of people. It becomes Most people pervasive within with the that. app. Mark. I've used pervasive a lot. <laughs> it's become really distributed among apps. And it becomes impossible to then build the moral anger backwards to then remove a feature that everyone's already accepted. Because once it starts mm-hmm. helping you, all the people see is the harm that it would have by removing it and not the benefits. Because things like right. privacy are more abstract, but losing the ability to use Tinder or using losing the ability to find like, my so I, so I can't, I can't find them while I'm driving. I can't
1: uh, track my a significant other during a dangerous walk to the store or something like that? Yeah, exactly. They're going to
0: die. Yeah. You know, and it normalizes it and then it makes it hard to change. So there are two things to keep in mind here is that of course we do have a push where regulation can make things better and regulation is self-enforcing and it grows its own strength. Like what we talked about, Mm -hmm. but also on a social level, one, as Alex was saying, that there's all these side channels to get around regulations that might exist that regulations have to think of the cat and coming mouse game. Exactly. And the problem is if if regulation doesn't get there first and it becomes accepted and it becomes normalized and it creeps outwards, then it's here to stay. And it's gonna be almost impossible to push it backwards um so i guess with that this episode has both positive and negative elements just be careful pessimism read the read the um read for for now read the terms of service yeah all right and with that thank you uh please remember to rate us and leave a review and send any questions to officialpubfo at gmail.com we're happy to answer any of them and if you want if you enjoy the podcast it wouldn't hurt to tell 10 of your friends absolutely or you know what? Just give us um, give us your contact permissions in the app, and we'll do it for you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.